Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business. On today's show, we're going to talk about food and the impact of what we eat on our health and our environment, how humanity produces food and what we choose to eat, and making us and our planet seriously sick. Unhealthy diets are more likely to kill us than unsafe sex and alcohol, drug and tobacco use combined. And food production is the single biggest driver of biodiversity loss and accounts for 27% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. But fixing the complicated riddle that is our food system could help the world achieve many, if not all, of the sustainable development goals. And a good place to start is with our own diets. A new report from the Worldwide Fund for Nature called Bending the Curve, the Restorative Power of Plant-Based Diets, looks at how what people eat in different countries affects the planet in different ways and how changing our diet could save the ecosystems on which we depend to feed us. Switching to plant-based food, at least in some countries, is one way that we can make a difference through what we put in our stomachs. On this week's podcast, we talked to the lead author of the report, Brent Loken, WWF's global food lead scientist, about the problems with our food system and how we can fix it. Welcome to the podcast, Brent. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Now, um, before we get on to discussing a very interesting and extensive report that you were the lead author on for um, WWF, um, Worldwide Fund for Nature, um, can you tell us a bit about your diet? <laughs> That's a great question to start with, you know, because, yeah, yeah. if you read a report like this, do you actually, you know, walk the talk? Um, you know, I would say that the flexitarian diet, which is outlined within the report, is pretty similar to the diet that I have. It's uh, um, mainly plant-based, um, so lots of nuts, lots of legumes, lots of fruits and veggies, uh, but occasional meat intake as well. Um, you know, I probably have uh, chicken maybe once a week, fish once a week, but I get the bulk of my proteins actually from plants. Uh, not vegetarian, not vegan. Um, you, you know, I believe flexibility is the most important thing, um, but very similar to adhering to the plant-based diet that we are looking at within this report. So, and yeah, my kids, I mean, I've got my girls here too. If you were to ask them, they're, you know, they eat the same way and they're six. Um, you know, and this this type of diet works for kids too. Good for you. Um, yeah, no, it is a bit of a journey, isn't it? I mean, two years ago, I decided to go pescatarian, which is obviously fish-based fish as the major protein. I haven't managed to kick um, meat of any description quite yet, but... Um, yeah, no, it's a tough thing to do, asking people to change their diets, isn't it? Now, Brent, one of the key messages in WWS reports, which is called Bending the Curve, the Restorative Power of Plant-Based Diets, is that we can reverse the damage that the food system does to our planet by changing our diet. But mm -hmm. changing something, right, changing something as complex as the food system is not that simple, is it? There are other factors, food loss, production methods, etc. Why the focus on diets in this report, Brent? Well, you made a comment uh, just a bit ago that changing people's diets is a really tricky thing to do. Um, and I would say that, you know, it is. It, it can be tricky, but at the same time, if you look at people's diets, they've actually changed quite dramatically over the past couple of decades. Um, and in some cultures, diets have changed within a single generation. You know, so we're seeing this radical shift away from uh, more traditional consumption patterns, which in, in, in like many places, it's a, it's, a, it's a low meat intake. 
to much higher, much higher consumption of meats and the highly processed foods and sugars. And that comes from summer and that happens extremely quickly. Uh, you know, so I would argue that uh, shifting diets um, can actually happen quite fast. Um, as long as the right marketing is done, um, as long as the right foods are in place, as long as you have access to them, as long as they are actually, um, uh, they're not so expensive that people can't actually buy them. Um, and if those conditions are in place, that I think I, I think people can shift diets fairly, yeah, fairly rapidly. And like this is one of the main reasons why we did focus on diets. Uh, just their sheer power that they have to be able to impact so many different things. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, and it's one of the few things that we have as individuals actually to be able to create that change. You know, I think each one of us struggles with trying to figure out exactly what it is that we can do to, to actually make the world a better place. You know, is it, you know, do we stop flying? Do we, do we, you know, buy a like a Tesla or something? But but diets is something that we can do three times a day, and and that's extremely empowering for for like each one of us. So we wanted to isolate diets, and we wanted to say, well, let's look at this one impact that has a potential that 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 each one of us can actually change that we have the power over, and look at this, let's look at their isolated impacts on each one of these environmental areas. Absolutely, yeah. No, you, that's a really good point, isn't it? It's it. Changing your diet, it's often said, is the one thing that everyone can do right now to have an impact on the planet in a, in a positive way, right? Um, but yeah, it's just yeah. very difficult to, to change people's diets. That's, that's an issue, isn't it? It can be. It can be. But, it, but, 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 you know, I think that as long as the right marketing is in place and, you know, what we have to do is we have to start making healthy diets a lot sexier. You know, we have to start making people want to eat in a healthy manner. You know, I think some of the some of the junk food, some of the junk food companies have done a really good job in terms of marketing unhealthy foods to kids and to other age groups. And they've made these foods, you know, something that people actually want to eat. They aspire to eating these foods. And we have to do the same thing with healthy foods. Uh, I think there's a bit of a perception out there that eating more plant-based diets are, you know, it's boring, it, 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 you know, the foods don't taste good. And we have to absolutely change that because that's not the case. Absolutely. And one of the issues um, with plant-based, where I'm talking to you from in Singapore, we've seen impossible foods and beyond burger come onto the scene, which obviously plant-based um, options, but they're very much, they're very expensive. That's another issue that's, I think, hurts the plant-based movement is that um, the perception at least that eating plant-based is more expensive in some cases than eating meat. Yeah, they're very expensive. And I think any sort of plant-based alternative that we look at, we need to ensure that the health is um, that we also think about the health, you know, so if we're offering plant-based burgers or plant-based, you know, items that are maybe good for the planet, but aren't good for ourselves, like for our health, uh, then that's probably not a good option for us. Um, so, so, um, any sort of plant-based, whether it's a plant-based burger or any other, you know, plant-based alternatives have to also factor in the health options as well. Um, but you know, this is why I keep on coming back to, I think that those sorts of items are important and they're important transitional foods, but raw natural foods are always the best. You really can't go wrong with this. You know, it's the nuts, it's the legumes, it's the fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, and with these things, you really know what you're getting. Going back to your report again, Brent, 
um, one of the things that the report mentions is that the NDGs, the National Dietary Guidelines that governments advise to citizens, are far off the science-based recommendations for both health and planetary, planetary health. Why is it that the governments are not telling us to eat the right food that is right for our health and, and right for the planet? Well, I would say for a couple of reasons. Um, first off, the science is, uh, like this is a fairly new topic. And I would say that the science has advanced very rapidly over the past five years in terms of truly understanding the health impacts that certain foods have on us and also the environmental impacts. I mean, I think that, you know, we're all talking about food now, but if you think up to five years ago, um, food wasn't something that was discussed as much, but there's been a a huge number of reports that have come out over the last three or four years that have really started to solidify the scientific evidence behind both the health impacts and also the impacts on the planet. So, you know, I would say that is one thing is that um, the access to this information just hasn't been there um, in the sheer quantities that it is now. The second thing is that, you know, governments are pulled in a lot of different directions. And I think there's a lot of industry influence as well um, in terms of making sure that, uh, with some of these national dietary guidelines that, um, that certain interests are incorporated into them. Um, you know, and, and I would say that one country that has done a really good job recently is Canada. So in their last round of national dietary guidelines, they let the science do the science. So they had 21 scientists working on their updated food, uh, um, national food guidelines is what they call them. Um, and it's extremely good. So it's very similar to the flexitarian diets that we actually look at. And it wasn't supported by industry. It wasn't influenced by industry. And I think that when we start to separate industry from recommendations, we'll start to see the science start to stand out a lot more clearly. Mm, okay. Um, now, I may have got this wrong, but the way I read the report is that it seems to have something of a contradiction in it, right? Um, it argues that with plant-based diets, people will live longer because they'll be healthier and have a lower impact on the environment. But if more people live longer, won't that have negative environmental consequences simply because more food will be needed to sustain human life? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that is an interesting contradiction. I mean, I guess I would say that anything that helps people to live a longer, happier life is a good thing. And we can work on, uh, on, on some of these other issues that you're talking about and some of these contradictions. Um, you, you know, what, what you do see is that young individuals, individuals, you know, within like under the age of five and also the elderly um, have the lowest impact on the food intake. You know, they're, they're the age, age groups that eat the lowest amount of foods. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that the sheer number of individuals and, and, and what we would see um, in terms of increased impact is it's really, we're just talking about at the margins uh, where the bulk of the impact is the, you know, individuals within that middle area um, that are eating, eating most of the foods. So, so I would say it's a bit of a contradiction, but it's probably at the margins. So the report um, notes that in countries like India and Indonesia, um, that if you were to shift towards healthier diets and increasing food intake, you would see um, biodiversity loss inevitably. Um, so I'm just asking, what's the best scenario for countries like that um, to mitigate the impact of the food system on biodiversity? 
Yeah, you know, this is one of the things that we wanted to highlight in this report is we wanted to show that it's not as simple as what is often claimed. You know, I think that we like to look for panaceas. We like to look at these one-shot answers as being the solutions. And, you know, some will point to organic foods or some will point to local foods. You know, some will say it's all about diet. And we wanted to say that diets are extremely important, that we have to do it, that we have to shift diets. But it's not always a simple one-way answer in terms of saying that it's always going to have these impacts. And what we saw within the report is that, you know, a large chunk of the world still faces significant burdens of undernutrition. You know, approximately 7 million people go to bed every single night without enough food. And if we're going to feed these individuals and we're, you know, if, if we take the notion of food for every single person on this planet seriously and healthy food for every single person, then that's going to have a cost. You know, it's going to have a land cost. We are going to have to produce more food and how we're going to do that. Um, and if we're, um, if we are putting all the onus of responsibility on these countries to solve this, these huge problems by themselves, well, that could have a negative impact. It could have a negative impact on greenhouse gas emissions, could have a negative impact on biodiversity loss and land use. So what we're saying is that here is we're just pointing out saying, okay, look, if a country like India, if a country like Malawi, if a country like Madagascar, if a country like Indonesia solves this by themselves and tries to domestically increase production and increase food to solve the issues of undernutrition, it could have a negative impact on biodiversity. But that's solely looking at diets. Now, if you say, okay, diets by themselves could cause negative impacts if we only look at diets, well, there's some other things that we can do as well. You could increase and change production practices so you can make your production a lot more efficient. You can make your how you actually produce your food a lot better. That would, re that would reduce the overall impact on land. That could potentially solve it. You could reduce how much food you actually waste. You know, 50% of most food is actually lost and wasted. If we reduce the amount of food which is lost and wasted, that would also help the overall pressure that we have on land. Um, also, we might have to increase trade. You know, one of the things that we're going to have to look at globally is we're going to have to figure out where we produce this food. Um, and is country X the best country to be, you know, producing this food in? And if not, then where do we produce it? And how do we get the food to the places that actually need it? And if we implement all those actions together, then we won't see increases in biodiversity loss. We won't see increases in water use. We won't see these negative impacts that we're seeing. But that's only if all actions are implemented and we all cooperate and we all and we all take this seriously together as one humanity living on this planet together. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, fixing the food system is does seem like a very complicated rid riddle, right, that takes pulling a variety of levers at different times. Um, another country that was mentioned in the report, Brent, which I thought was fascinating, is the case of Denmark. Right. Shifting away, correct me if I'm wrong, but shifting away from animal based diets does not help reduce biodiversity loss at all um, in Denmark because of the environmental cost of eating more plant based food. Um, so in some countries, right, eating some meat is actually better than switching to uh, plant based diets. Is, is that right? Well, I wouldn't say that eating meat is better than shifting towards plant-based diets. What I would say is that this, you know, this is narrowly looking at diets as being, you know, how do, what impact does diets by, by itself have? Um, and in some countries, like you pointed out, um, there is an environmental impact for eating more fruits and vegetables and, and nuts and legumes and stuff, you know? So, you know, and if you look at the overall amount of 
um, land that we use to grow the crops. You know, we would think by shifting towards plant-based diets, it would free up all this land. But in fact, what we see is that the overall global crop land stays about the same. And that's because we have to start growing more fruits and vegetables, nuts and legumes and other things to actually support these other dietary shifts. And Denmark is a good example of this, you know, you know, saying that the overall impact on biodiversity might not decrease. However, if you also look at Denmark, you'll see that most of the increase or most of the impact doesn't come from red meat and dairy. It comes from uh, coffee, nuts, or um, it comes from coffee, spices, and these um, exotic foods, um, or these more luxury foods, as some would say. Um, you know, so that's another indication of saying we have to look at every single country by themselves. Because in Denmark, the impact is not necessarily from red meat and dairy. So shifting away has less of an impact. But if the Danes started to reduce their overall consumption of coffee, tea, spices, and coca, that would have a much greater impact. And therefore, we would see the reduction of biodiversity by shifting away from other food groups. Um, your point about red meat consumption, though, is an important point because there are some countries where livestock is needed to uh, support grazing lands and livestock is needed to support natural prairies. And we have to be very careful about taking livestock off some of these natural systems where they're supported by um, the optimal amount of livestock that, that actually helps to support biodiversity and support carbon sequestration. But once again, that's really context dependent and we have to look at each country by themselves. Mm, interesting. You mentioned coffee and tea um, being a big part of the um, biodiversity loss story in the, the Danish diets. I do um, wonder with some trepidation what, whether that's similar for the UK where I'm from, which um, it, it consume, is. consumes an enormous <laughs> amount of tea. Wow. Okay. But once again, if we change our production practices, if we decrease, if we reduce how much food is actually lost and wasted, um, and if we think about are some of these areas the best place to actually grow these foods, you know, if we start to factor in different ways of doing it and doing it better, um, then we can actually decrease impact from, from these food items. But we might not need that, that coffee from Starbucks three or four times a day. You know, we might yeah. also have to look at our coffee and tea, you know, how much we actually eat or yeah, drink. Yeah, absolutely. But indeed, something like coffee is its just so difficult to, to wean yourself off that, that habitual fix, right? Um, another interesting fact in the report is that, and I'm sort of quoting here, that only by universally following a vegan diet would greenhouse gas emissions be reduced to near the planetary boundary for food solely through a dietary shift. Now, that's interesting. Now, uh, an argument's often made about veganism is that people sometimes say if you switch to entirely plant-based food overnight, we simply wouldn't have the land to grow all the crops we'd need. Um, is there any truth in that, Brent, that, that assumption? Yes and no. Um, so there's been several examples that we've discussed um, where we've mentioned or I've mentioned the fact that diets by themselves aren't going to get us there. That, that we have to couple dietary shifts with getting better at how we produce the food with making sure that we don't waste as much food as well, right? And this is another one of those cases. Um, you know, if we shift all towards vegan diets or if we shift towards more plant-based diets and still continue to produce food in a way which is inefficient, which is ineffective in many cases where we're wasting 50% of this food, well, then we're going to need more land. 
but that's less about the shift of diets and it's more about how we actually produce it. You know, so what, what you actually see is that if you shift towards more plant-based diets and you change how you produce food and you reduce um, the amount of food, which is lost or wasted, it, it has a positive impact on land and you can actually save a lot of land that way. Um, especially when you're looking at the amount of land, which is, which is used for livestock grazing, um, you know, but then you have to then look at the flip side of that and say, well, what is the overall impact on biodiversity and land by taking livestock off it? And we have to factor all of those. And in some cases, like I said before, that's probably not always the best option. And it's, and it's actually probably better to actually leave some of this livestock on the land. But, you know, it, it's, it's very important to emphasize here that we're not um, saying that everybody has to become a vegan. You know, we're not saying that everybody has to become a vegetarian or, or shift to a certain type of diet. You know, you know, we're just presenting options. You know, we're saying here's a flexitarian option. Here's a pescatarian or vegetarian and vegan option. Here are the impacts. You ultimately have to make your choice. Individual countries have to make their own choices and recommendations, but here's the data that you can use to underpin and to, and to use for all the decisions that, that you make. Um, but we aren't supporting or promoting a certain type of dietary lifestyle. Interesting. Um, yeah, going back to a plant species, Brent, the report also mentions that there are many underused plant species that are very healthy and have um, traits of interest for adapting food production to climate change. wonder if you give us a few examples of healthy underused plant species that um, people should be eating um, perhaps more of. Yeah, it really depends on where you're located in the in the, in the world. But um, I'll just give India as one of the examples. Um, India has a lot of ancient grains. You know, these grains like millets that have been used for centuries that are extremely healthy and in many cases very tolerant towards heat um, and increasingly intolerable hotter land. Um, um, and millets aren't used very much anymore. You know, so a lot of these ancient grains have, you know, individuals have actually shifted away from their use. Um, and to eat those types of foods have been, are now characterized are, well, you don't have enough money, so you have to eat those foods. Whereas those are some of the healthiest foods that we have. So, so, so in what's happened in many cultures is that these ancient grains, these almost healthier foods that, that, that we used to eat, um, you know, years ago, we're actually no longer eating and there's almost like a social stigma on them. Um, so, so they're there and we have to figure out how to shift back towards some of these foods. Um, now, what we're seeing in many cases in India is there is a pretty strong promotion of some of these ancient grains um, and a very strong promotion of these, uh, of these, uh, of like a reconnection to our cultural roots and, and, and then the foods that we used to eat and destigmatizing them. Um, and I would say that in most cultures, you can find examples of, of foods that are like that, uh, that are often healthier, but, are, but, but we just don't eat. Um, and for some reason, I'm not sure why, but we're, but we're you know, relying on only a couple foods, you know, corn and rice and tons of wheat. Um, and, you know, each one of us needs a diversity of foods every single day. And that's what our focus should be. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned social stigmas there. Um, now, in recent years, we've seen the phenomenon of um, plane shaming, where people that travel too much um, are shamed for their uh, sort of planet harming um, transport and travel plans. Right. Do you think that uh, we'll get to a point where 
uh, there'll be diet shaming. I know mean, obviously there's the phenomenon of fat shaming, you know, that, that with that's <laughs> more, that's more sort of body, uh, body shape shaming. But what about meat eater shaming or that sort of, um, social stigma against, um, eating, uh, planet harming foods? What do you think? Yeah, I, I actually live in Sweden where the, where the whole idea of plane shaming, I think originated. Um, and, uh, I hope we don't get to that place where we start shaming people for their individual choices. Um, I think there are better ways of doing it than that. Um, you know, and I think that we need to make sure that we understand all the facts before we start to put this kind of pressure on individuals, you know, and just for example, if you're looking at flights, you know, if you look at the overall global environmental impact that comes from, like the transport sector and comes from the amount, from the amount of impact that comes from the aviation sector is actually quite small compared to other sectors. Um, uh, so although it's bad and we need to think about how we, the amount of flying that we have, um, uh, you know, it, it, there are other sectors that we could be focusing on that would have a much greater impact maybe. Same thing I would say with, with, with some diets, you know, I, I, I don't think we should ever get to the point and I don't think it's fair to shame people for eating some meat because we don't know why they're eating it. Um, we don't know what the underlying conditions are. What we're saying is don't overconsume it. So it's not about shaming them just for eating it. It's saying just don't eat too much. You know, let's just take a more of a middle ground approach and maybe you don't need it for every single meal. Maybe it doesn't need to be the center place of your meal. Um, and maybe we, we could we could think about a relationship in a very different way. Uh, so, you know, I would hope that that's the approach that we end up taking instead of shaming people for it. Because, you know, I think that some case, you know, in some situations when you shame people for um, uh, for making choices that they do, there is like a negative reaction to this. Um, and, and, you know, food, food has to be enjoyable, you know, food, food is something that we have to have a positive connection to and, and the same has to go with meat. Yeah. I often try to, to shame my best friend about eating meat, but then he sends me pictures of the, <laughs> the, the burgers he's about to devour before he, before he eats them. So you're absolutely right. It has the opposite effect. I'd agree with that. Um, another important part of the, um, report Brent is, uh, how to improve crop yield. Right. Um, and the report mentions a phrase known as nature positive food systems. I want to ask you, what does a nature positive food system look like and how can we achieve it? Yeah, so I just launched a TED video. Um, it was launched at the Countdown Summit uh, on October 10th, actually, where um, one of the things that we discussed in that video is what a nature positive food system looks like. It's one where it really restores nature. And what, what we've been seeing over the past several decades is that although we're producing enough food to feed every single person on this planet, we've done it by clearing forests, uh, killing animals, destroying biodiversity, using waters, using this ancient aquifer water that has been there for you know thousands of years. So we've done it by exploiting nature, and that is absolutely not a nature positive. That's a nature negative system, right? So, so we've been able to feed people, but we're doing it by kind of taking from the uh, from the bank, this bank that nature gives us. What we have to do is we need to start reversing that. So we start to uh, putting putting that money back in the bank, you know, which means we have to start restoring the biodiversity. We have to start 
producing food in a way where we're on a farmland, it actually supports biodiversity and doesn't destroy it. On a farmland, it actually supports greenhouse gas emissions uh, uh, to be stored in the soil, to be stored in the trees. So that means farming and, and we've got nature on it. We've got trees on it. It's mixed crop systems. It's a, uh, it's um it's it's very different farming systems than the monocrop systems that we look at today, you know. And if we do that, and if we do it smartly, we can actually produce food for every single person on the planet. We can actually restore biodiversity. We can actually uh, store CO two into the grounds and trees that we have on the croplands, um, and that's a very positive thing. And you know, you know, when we think about it, forty percent of the planet is just agricultural land. 40%. So that's a lot of land that we have to work with. And if we, and if we use that 40% and if we do it in a much smarter way, uh, it will have a huge impact. Now, the report does, uh, underlying it, does contain something of a warning, right? It, it's, um, I'm a big fan of Blade Runner. And in that, uh, the latest version of Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, it depicts a, a not too distant dystopian future where we'll all be eating genetically modified grubs grown in laboratories of because natural ecosystems have simply collapsed under the weight of mainly agriculture um, at the current rate at which um, diets are changing now um, I wonder does does the future look that bleak to you um, and second question how hopeful are you Brent that we can change our diets and change the food system in time um, to avoid as I mentioned, um, planetary catastrophe. <laughs> well, I really, I mean, although that was a really good movie, I, I, I really hope that that's not our future. <laughs> um, you know, and this is why I do what I do. You know, this is why I work so hard on it because, you know, it's just to prevent that type of future. And I think what individuals, it's hard to, for individuals to understand is, is how close we are towards that type of future. And, and, and we're really facing the crossroads right now in terms of the choices that we make over the next 10 years um, really could potentially decide whether that's a future track that we're on or whether we're on this more nature positive uh, uh, global, you know, transformation of the food system and the way that we look at food. Um, but those choices have to be made today, you know, and um I am, I am extremely hopeful. Um, and one of the reasons that I shifted towards working on food is because of what I started with, you know, food is one of those things that we're all connected to, you know, we do it three times a day. Uh, the power is on our plate, the choices that we make, we, we actually have control over it. And that's an extremely empowering field to be working in, to be able to say, you know what, it's not about somebody else making these choices. It's about the choices that you make, you know, and, and if you go home and if you, if you talk to your family and if you change what you eat, it could be the single greatest action that you can actually have, you know, and I, I am extremely hopeful. You know, I think if in many parts of the world, we're, you know, we are seeing a dietary shift. We are seeing this revolution of, of, of younger, like the younger generation thinking very differently about food thinking very differently about the relationships with food and, 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 and wanting to eat more plants and wanting to eat in a way which is better for them and better for the planet. Um, so I think it can be done. What, what worries me is whether we can do it in time. Um, you know, I would, I would say if we had a bit more time to figure this out, it, we're, it's this big social experiment about how we, you know, how we do this. And we're also experimenting on the planet. 
You know, I, I would say, yes, I'm, I, I'm very hopeful. Uh, but we can't leave it only up to the individual just because of the time frame that we're facing. You know, we've, you know, we've got a decade, you know, probably in the next decade is the most important. Um, that's why we need politicians to get on board. You know, we need that top down regulation to be put in place to support the bottom up revolution that we're talking about. Um, and I think together we'll be able to do that. But but uh, but we can't rest it all on the shoulders or all on the plates of individuals and say it's all up to you, because I think if we do that, it's it might be hard to achieve it in this time frame that we're talking about. Indeed. So the time is very much um, now for change. Inspiring words and a great place to leave it. Brent Loken, thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Robin, it's been my pleasure. I just want to thank you for this and your interest in this topic and any work that you do on this. And, uh, you know, the power is on our plates. And I would encourage all of the, you know, all of the listeners to go home and think differently about the foods that you're eating. So thank you very much. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.